Welcome to the Murthy Teleconference Series. Today's topic is employment-based immigration options. I am delighted and honored to have so many of you participate, and even more delighted and honored to have two of my very esteemed colleagues, Korzad Mehta and Anna Stepanova, join us as we discuss the various employment options for an employer to sponsor and process an employee for permanent resident status in the United States. Unlike the short-term or temporary non-immigrant visas, visa categories, this is obviously for an employee to live, work permanently for the employer in the U.S. Okay, so let me just go over a little over broad overview. By the way, for those who don't recognize this incredible voice, it is Sheila Murthy, the founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. Um, so what's the, oh, to go over the overview, so what's, what's the general background or the backdrop in which we describe it? Um, there are four or five major employment-based options under which a person is able to obtain permanent residency or green card status. In addition to the jobs that allow sponsorship through the employer based on a labor certification, you have other jobs where there's no labor certification or which are exempt, like the Schedule A designations for certain nurses, physical therapists, and aliens of exceptional ability. Then we have the extraordinary ability category, the multinational executive or manager, and the outstanding professor researchers, which are EB1. But even in the EB1, you have two of them that require an employer and one that doesn't require an employer. Um, the second main stage after the labor is either approved or it's exempt from a labor certification is the I-140 stage in the employment-based first, second, and third categories. And in these three categories, the I-140 or the immigrant visa petition stage is where the employer or the individual would actually file the petition to show that, yes, I do have these credentials, and you submit proof of the financial ability of the employer, et cetera. And you have, assuming the labor uh, is approved, the I-140 is approved, or there's an exemption of the labor certification, the immigrant visa number has to be available for the individual to go ahead and file the adjustment of status or the I-485 paperwork or obtain an immigrant visa from the U.S. consulate abroad. Um, okay, so Anna, I know I've given a really broad overview of the major steps involved in how the process works. Can you explain what are the employment-based different categories between you and Corzad, obviously, but I'm going to have you start with the EB-1 priority workers. What are the different categories that apply and what are the criteria for each of these EB-1 categories? Thank you, Sheila. Uh, before I start um, talking about EB-1 priority workers, let me just give a general overview on how many employment-based uh, immigrant visas are available. And, um, well, the fact is that the Immigration and Nationality Act, which we commonly refer to as INA, uh, provides a yearly minimum of 140,000 employment-based immigrant visas. Um, the annual limit for family-sponsored immigrant visas is 226,000 for those who, who are interested in that um, as well. The INA also provides that the total number of immigrant visas uh, made available uh, for any single foreign country in any fiscal year 
may not exceed 7% of the total number of visas available in that fiscal year. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to talk about EB-1. And um, EB-1 priority workers receive 28.6% of the yearly worldwide limit. Um, the and that translates to about 40,000 in each employment-based category. That's correct. That's correct. And um, there are three categories within the larger category of EB-1. Um, the first one is uh, extraordinary ability. And this classification is intended for people who have reached the very top of their fields and um, they are recognized as leaders in their fields. Uh, the sustained acclaim and recognition in the field of expertise can be proved by showing either that the alien has received a major national or international prize, such as the Nobel Prize. So sometimes people ask me, okay, I don't have the Nobel Prize. Would I qualify? Well, the truth of the matter is that most people would qualify on the basis of provided evidence that fits the alternative criteria. That's three out of the set of ten eligibility criteria. I'm not going to um, give you all of the ten, but just to give you an idea of what we commonly use uh, for our clients, um, we use documentation of the alien's receipt of less nationally or internationally recognized prizes or awards uh, in their field of endeavor, and we use published material about the person. We use um, their own publications and citations. We also use um, their uh, expertise and experience of judging the work of others. Uh, a lot of our clients um, commonly serve on um, editorial boards and they review articles written by other researchers or um, professionals in their field. So this is just an example and um, sometimes the, the standards um, that readily apply to scientists do not apply to other professionals. Um, so in that case the petitioner may submit comparable evidence to establish his or her eligibility. Wonderful, Anna. Okay, so that's for the extraordinary ability. And now we're going to go to outstanding professors and researchers. Again, I'm not assuming it's a large percentage of employers, but it's usually universities uh, or research institutions or private pharmaceutical companies, that kind of employers. That's correct. That's the second um, criterion in uh, the EB-1 category. I'm sorry, the, the second uh, subcategory in the EB-1 category. Uh, what's important here is that unlike uh, the extraordinary ability category, this category does require a job offer. However, um, uh, like in the extraordinary ability category, there is no labor certification requirement. To qualify in this category, a person must have at least three years of experience in, te uh, in um, teaching or doing research in their field. Um, they should have um, they, they, they should be able to uh, show uh, rec recognition in their field. And um, a prospective employer must provide a job offer, uh, as I said uh, before, but there is no labor certification requirement. Uh, the uh, job for which the uh, person is entering the U.S. to for uh, as an immigrant should be a tenured or tenure track position. But if, it, if he or she is a researcher, they should have a job offer which is permanent. And um, if it's a research 
um, position with a private employer, then the private employer itself should employ at least three full-time researchers and has uh, documented accomplishments in, that, in the same field. Right, and I know one of the big concerns always for most employers, private or universities, the job offer of permanent duration because no, nothing in the world, especially in America and especially in this economy, is ever permanent. But all that really, really means, not to scare anybody off, is that there's no specific termination date. Like with most grants, it's like a one-year grant or a two-year grant. If it's a one-year grant, then obviously it's not going to work. But if it's of indefinite duration, then, then you meet the test to qualify for this category. Is that correct, Anna? That, that's okay. correct, Sheila. Permanent job, uh, it doesn't mean that the uh, person uh, is not able to quit the job or the employer cannot um, ever terminate, ever terminate them, but um, the permanent job just means that there is no expiration. Exactly. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Anna. Now, Korzad, we're going to have you discuss the next category for EB1s, but before I do that, there's an important point that I always forget to mention, but I know it's important, is that there is no recording allowed of today's teleconference, as with any teleconference of the Murthy Law Firm, because these are copyrighted materials of the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, so if you have been recording, I request you to please hit the stop button because you are violating copyrighted material and uh, you need prior written permission from us to be able to record and replay or listen to later. Okay, Korzad. So the third category of the employment-based first preference, or EB1 category, refers to certain executives or managers. Can you explain briefly the overview and the criteria? Sure, I'd be happy to, uh, Sheila. Thanks for having me here. In today's global economy, this is um, an increasingly important category, and it's very nice that the U.S. Congress has placed this within the first preference because it allows for the relatively speedy free flow of managerial or executive um, employees or personnel from uh, areas abroad outside of the United States to the United States so that um, commercial enterprises can move forward with speed and that essential personnel, managers and executives, can be placed in the United States to develop operations and ultimately benefit our own economy here. Um, the criteria are um, relatively straightforward. Um, the individual who's seeking classification as a um, extraordinary, um, or I'm sorry, as a first preference employment-based immigrant as a multinational manager executive must have been employed for at least one out of the three preceding years by an overseas affiliate, parent, subsidiary, or branch of a U.S. employer in a managerial or executive, um, executive uh, employment. So they must have been a manager and executive abroad for one full year out of the previous three years before trying to come to the United States. Aha, uh -huh, but I thought there was a recent change in the last two or three months on this criteria where they had that it was no longer in the one year in the past three years before entering the U.S., but just within the past three years. They modified and have actually limited it greatly. Is that right, or am I looking at something else? Because I remember sending that around to people. There was the latest change in the last two or three months. Okay, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll have to verify, but that's the understand, that's my understanding that was recently modified. Okay. And next? Um, the applicant must be coming to the United States to work in a managerial executive capacity. 
Um, as I said before, no labor certification is required for this, um, for this category, which uh, does assist uh, a lot with uh, predictability of processing times. And the prospective employer, that means that the uh, U.S. entity with the qualifying relationship with the entity abroad, must provide a job offer and file a petition with the USCIS. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. So now let's move on from the EB-1, and to try and summarize, it's the three subcategories in the EB-1 or employment-based aliens of extraordinary ability, outstanding professors, researchers, and multinational executives or managers. Now moving right along to EB-2 or the employment-based second preference category, this is for professionals with advanced degrees or persons of exceptional ability. Korzad? Would you continue to explain how this works? What are the visa allocation numbers? Because everybody, especially if you were, happen to be born in India or China, you always want that wonderful EB-2 instead of that EB-3. And why is that important? Well, um, much like the first preference category, the second preference also allocated 28.6% of the yearly worldwide limit. Uh, I mean, the, the year that we're talking about is the, is the federal fiscal year, which starts on October 1 of every year. Um, and the reason why it is uh, generally preferred by nationals of India or China over, um, over EB3 is for the simple fact that at least up to this point, demand for those numbers has been relatively less than numbers in the EB-3 uh, category. Um, the EB-3 eligibility will go into later on in, as we speak. And also all the unused numbers from EB-1, which most many years, most years never get used up, fall into this big trough, the EB-2. So they get the first bite of the apple, or rather the second bite of the apple <laughs> after EB-1. And so that's why it's a much more favorable classification for many people. Yeah, it's, you know, simply put, there is the potential for greater uh, supply, which can meet the ever-increasing demand that there is out there for visa numbers. Um, typically, um, all second preference uh, petitions are going to require a uh, labor certification as a preliminary step. This is different from what we were just talking about in the employment-based first preference, where we repeatedly said that a labor certification is not required. Um, what a labor certification is, the details of it are outside the scope of what we're talking about today, but simply put, it's a labor market test where a U.S. employer will seek out a um, minimally qualified U.S. worker and uh, upon av unavailability of such a worker, will offer a uh, permanent job to a uh, foreign national. And for those who don't want, who want, you know, who don't understand it completely, or want to understand more, you are welcome to sign up and participate in the free, you know, teleconference where we focus exclusively on labor certifications in in, in great depth. Now, typically, um, there are two subgroups within the uh, employment-based second preference category. Um, one are those professionals that hold an advanced degree. Uh, that means that for job offers which require an individual to hold an advanced degree, and, and that is an advanced degree is defined in the regulations as a master's degree or a bachelor's degree plus five years of progressively responsible experience. Now, notice I said the job requires. An individual who has these qualifications, though highly qualified, is not going to automatically fall within the second preference category simply because they have those qualifications. They must be offered a job which requires those qualifications as the bare minimum to accomplish the duties of the job. And not just by that employer 
but also the industry in general, because I know everybody wants it because I have a master's degree or I have a BS in five, but that's not just sufficient. No, there has to be a job that requires it. Um, And the second subcategory within uh, employment-based second preference, EB2, is for persons with exceptional ability in the arts, science, or business. Very similar, but not exactly like EB1, an individual must show that they have a track record of exceptional ability in their uh, their field or uh, of endeavor to qualify under this particular prong of the second preference. And that can be shown by, sh- that can be shown by establishing that uh, an individual has a higher degree of expertise than that which is ordinarily account- encountered in the field. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, the labor certification requirement remains common. That must, that must be there. But, and the labor certification must indicate that the position requires an advanced degree. But with, with exceptional ability, an individual can show either through showing documentation that they have a license to practice the profession or certification for the particular profession, or they have letters from experts that show that they have at least 10 years of full-time experience in the occupation for which um, class, permanent immigration classification is being sought, uh, an academic record that shows that a degree or diploma has been earned uh, in the field of endeavor, uh, that you know, there's been a higher salary, uh, recognition with awards um, and materials that show that an individual has attained a significant level of um, of, uh, of uh, attainment accomplishment. Of, of accomplishment okay. in the field. Um, now that's where we're talking about you know where there's a job offer, but not all uh, um, not all jobs must um, nece- may necessarily show a job offer. That means to say that an individual may be able to even within the employment based second preference seek a waiver of the job offer, i.e. the labor certification requirement, if they meet certain criteria. And that, I think you're going to start talking about in a minute, is the national interest waiver. Sure, sure. Okay. So just before we get, go on to the next item for national interest waivers, uh, coming back, it sounds like 99% of the people do not use the um, exceptional ability standard in EB2 because almost every single case when it's a labor certification case, we go with the traditional master's degree or bachelor's plus five years. And there are not a lot of people, but quite a few people who have many, many years of experience who may fit within the EB2 exceptional ability standard. And actually, because it is used so rarely, we have actually heard where USCIS gets confused and says, hey, we're going to deny this case because you don't fit into the extraordinary ability or national interest waiver. And the truth is there is this other subcategory in EB2 that is grossly underutilized and may fit certain people with the right qualifications that Corza just explained. Yeah, it's a highly nebulous mm-hmm. concept. And um, it's, it, you know, much like the employment first preference category, the adjudication standards are highly um, subjective, not objective. So um, generally, employers and individuals prefer the quote-unquote uh, cut and dry that is um, having a job offer that has a specific minimum requirement of a master's degree or a bachelor's degree plus five years of progressively responsible experience. Exactly. Okay, so now we've done EB1, we've done EB2, and we're going on to the category that Corza just referred to, namely EB2, but where you do not need an employer or a job offer because the individual may decide to file on her or his own or could use an employer also for the purpose, but there is a waiver of the job offer requirement, and we refer to this as an IW or national interest waiver, where there's an exemption from the job offer requirement, 
based on showing that the job is in the national interest of the United States. Anna, what does that really mean? What is national interest of the United States and how do you show it? Because everybody would love to have the freedom of not being either tied to an employer or having the freedom to, with the same employer, switching to a different job without having to file papers with the USCIS. What does that mean? Uh, Sheila, that's a very, very good question because um, nowhere in the law or regulations would we uh, be able to find exactly what criteria um, are being used um, in order for a person to qualify for so-called national interest waiver. And you know what? At one time they had introduced regulations, maybe 10 years ago, but then they withdrew those regulations. But then for four or five years after that, they continued to use those regulations as the governing standard or criteria for uh, analyzing and approving or denying NIW cases, which we thought was really sort of ultra-virus in a sense, not allowed under the law. But thank goodness they've stopped referring to you know, whatever they call them, proposed regulations, but now they're just following what standard then? Well, most what we know about national interest waiver comes from case law. There are several cases, and uh, as Corzette already uh, mentioned, uh, the national interest waiver uh, kind of exception or subgroup within the EB2 category uh, falls within the employment-based second preference either exceptional ability or um, professions holding an advanced degree. However, since uh, 1998, August 1998, uh, the New York State Department of Transportation case, which um, a lot of people would um, either hear about or um, use in uh, with filing of their cases. So th this case appears to eliminate those who have merely exceptional ability, but not an advanced degree, which kind of goes in line with what Corzette was just talking about, and um, they wouldn't be able to qualify for the national interest waiver category uh, just based on the exceptional ability alone. So that's the uh, that comes from case law, and it's not written anywhere in the law of regulations. The second point is that, uh, as already has been mentioned here, in contrast to regular EB2 petitions, NIW cases are exempt from the labor certification and job offer requirements. So the person has um, a lot more flexibility and um, a lot more people in nowadays tough market conditions choose to file for a waiver from the labor certifi certification requirement uh, for various reasons. Uh, as I said, uh, tough market conditions, uh, fewer employers uh, willing and being able to sponsor uh, workers through labor certification and so on and so forth. So this is a very attractive uh, option for a lot of people. Uh, as also mentioned by Corzad and you, Sheila, the individual's work uh, must have intrinsic merit and be national in scope. And that's easy to meet in most cases. But the uh, third uh, criterion that was established by the uh, uh, New York State Department of Transportation case is that the uh, petitioner or applicant, uh, because they are self-petitioning, must prove that uh, his or her work presents a national benefit so great as to outweigh the national interest inherent in the labor certification process. How do we uh, prove that? We use a lot of the same criteria that we use for extraordinary ability petitions in the EB1 category uh, for people who are researchers or um, 
professors, um, professionals in their field, we commonly use publications, judging experience, uh, citations, and presentations in different symposia and conferences. Uh, so we use a lot of um, those, but you um, should remember that EB2 doesn't have as high of a threshold as EB1. Okay. Now, Corzad, I want you, if you have, because I know you, your main area of fun and practice that you want to do is represent hospitals and universities and medical institutions or employers in the medical field um, with respect to physicians. And so there's a separate subcategory in NIW, in National Interest Waivers, specifically for qualified physicians in underserved areas. Can you describe that a little bit? Um, because... There are lots of, you know, employers and individuals that are very interested in this category. I'd be happy to. Um, the uh, National Interest Waiver uh, category for qualified physicians in underserved areas is a very, very nice carve-out within the um, general National Interest Waiver um, scheme as, or not scheme, but, uh, you know, law as uh, promulgated by Congress. Um, the seminal case on physician National Interest Waivers is not uh, New York State Department of Transportation or NISDOT as... Um, as it's more commonly known in the, in the bar, but is actually Schneider v. Chertoff, which came out um, roughly 2006-2007 and changed a couple of the nuances of it. Uh, certain things remain the same. The, uh, one of the eligibility criteria is that the National Interest Waiver for Physician under, Underserved Areas relieves the petitioner from the labor certification process. Now, the petitioner, like Anna said, is the actual um, physician. A physician can self-sponsor uh, self through the second preference national interest waiver criteria. Um, must still be a second preference um, you know, qualified person, so they must have an advanced degree. For physicians, that's typically easily met because they have a medical degree or it's foreign equivalent as uh, certified by the uh, Educational Commission of Foreign Medical Graduates, or the ACFMG. Um, the individual, the physician, must commit to work full-time in an area that is designated by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, as a health professional shortage area uh, and, uh, and or um, work in a uh, VA, Veterans Affairs Facility, for a period of five years before being eligible to adjust status. Um, and um, if, if that's the case, then they'll receive a letter either from the VA or from the state, which is sponsoring their... Um, their uh, national interest waiver, uh, their national interest waiver, with a, a statement of need that their work is in the national interest. Um, the time that counts towards the five years can be any time that they've been in the health professional shortage area in a non-immigrant classification such as A H O um, uh, H or O, uh, not J. That doesn't count. Uh, that's one of the distinctions that was made in the Schneider v. Chertoff case. Uh, previously, only. Uh, individuals, physicians who were practicing in primary care were eligible for the National Interest Waiver uh, physician category. That is not the case anymore. Schneider v. Chertoff got rid of that. Um, specialists are able to, well, not so much Schneider v. Chertoff. Schneider v. Chertoff didn't reach that, but subsequent memos have allowed for um, specialists also to qualify under the Physician National Interest Waiver category. Um, and uh, there's no set time frame for completion of the five-year commitment as it was previous to Schneider v. Chertoff. However, um, the USCIS will still require, through uh, periodic requests for evidence, that must be um, that must be filed with the USCIS at the uh, second anniversary after um, after completion uh, after approval of the I-140 uh, and the fourth anniversary. 
that um, that uh, time that uh, meaningful progress towards meeting the five years is continuing to be made uh, towards getting the um, getting the green card under this category. Okay, and just so we make it clear. Uh, the five years is for a national interest waiver in the physicians because a lot of times when I say five years, the physicians, the doctors, when I'm talking to them, always say, hey, I thought I had only a three-year contract with my employer. So just can you explain that in a sentence because I'm asked that all the time? Sure, absolutely. The three-year commitment that the doctors are referring to in such a case is their waiver commitment, uh, the one that they must fulfill to be free of their 212E foreign home residence requirement because they were previously in J1 classification. Now, that time must be fulfilled in H1B classification, so those three years do count towards fulfilling the five years. However, it is, it is a different, quote-unquote, kettle of fish. And we, and we don't have the time in this session because we still have to touch upon EB4 and EB5 to get a great deal into physicians in terms of, you know, when does it satisfy, when does it, that's three years, when can there be an overlap, you know, if the person moves to a different health professional shortage area, et cetera. Uh, but those are fascinating issues. There's a lot of gray areas and there's a lot of clear-cut guidance from uh, Department of State and USCIS, which... I'm sure Korzad would be delighted to have a separate full one-hour session focusing on that. Anna, let's go to the most common EB3 or employment-based third preference category, which applies to practically almost everybody who doesn't have, I guess, or the job doesn't require the master's or the bachelor's in five years. Can you briefly just go over the criteria and what it entails? Absolutely, Sheila. This EB3 category, as mentioned, everyone wants EB2, um, so what is EB3 and why uh, people who qualify for EB3 um, do not necessarily qualify for EB2, as you already explained? But first, um, again, this category receives 28.6% of the worldwide limit per year, uh, plus any unused uh, EB1 and EB2 visas uh, will fall into that category at the end of the year, which doesn't happen very often, but that's the, that's the idea. Um, the third preference category, EB3, has three subcategories, uh, one for professionals and um, the second one for skilled workers and the third one for other workers. Well, the first one um, it defines, well, professionals. What is a profession? In general, a profession is an occupation uh, that has a minimum requirement of four-year U.S. college degree in a field specific to that occupation. Uh, I forgot to mention that, uh, of course, labor certification process is required for all three subcategories. The, uh, um, the second subcategory is for a skilled worker, and workers whose jobs require a minimum of two years of training or experience and uh, who are being sponsored by the U.S. employers uh, would qualify for this category. The third one, other workers. Other workers, uh, those workers whose jobs require less than two years of specific training and who are being sponsored by the U.S. employers. So uh, th this, this is why 
if you qualify for EB3, even if you have a master's degree, it doesn't necessarily mean that you would qualify for EB2 because n not every job requires a master's degree. Exactly. And the other thing that I find uh, uh, which is sometimes a problem is if a person has only, for example, a three-year BCom degree from a country like India, a bachelor's in commerce, or like a, a chartered accountancy, but not really having done a four-year degree from India, but maybe a three-year BCom, or even not even that sometimes, or even a CA from India, a chartered accountant, which is similar to the CPAs in the U.S., sometimes it may be safer for some of those candidates to file in the skilled worker category, which is a really good tip, because sometimes, erroneously, the attorney or the employer may, um, without realizing it, try to argue that it's equivalent to a four-year bachelor's degree. And the USCIS, especially at the I-140 stage, because the labor will get approved, and the I-140 stage, they come back and say, sorry, three-year degree cannot equate to a four-year degree because there's no education. And they end up denying the uh, person at the I-140 stage, which is really sort of annoying and depressing at the same time because you've lost tons of time, tons of money, um, and now you have to start everything from scratch in EB-3 after losing two, three, four, five years. So here's a magic tip, a secret uh, tip that we're sharing with you, and hopefully you'll use that. Okay, I know we not too many people use the employment-based fourth preference, and I know we try to stick to the 30 to 45-minute time frame, so we have about 10 minutes. Uh, in three or four minutes, we'll try to do the EB-4, and then in three or four minutes, the EB-5. Corzad, just give us a quick overview of what exactly is the employment-based fourth preference. Fourth preference is for special immigrants, Sheila. And, uh, you know, unlike the 28.6% of the worldwide numbers that are reserved for the first three uh, categories, uh, comparatively much, much smaller, 7.1% of the total yearly worldwide limit is reserved for fourth preference um, special immigrants. Um, you know, special immigrants run a wide variety of, um, of potential categories. Uh, they can be Amerasians. Uh, widow, widower petitions, uh, battered spouse or uh, child of a um, U.S. citizen, um, religious workers fall underneath this category, and, and then also very uh, ones that are not very heavily utilized, like Panama Canal workers, Iraqi translators, um, Iraqi nationals who work with the U.S. Armed Forces, uh, ju uh, special immigrant juveniles. Those are juveniles who have become wards of the state can, uh, can um, qualify for um, immigrant classification under this category. Uh, the form is different. Unlike the USCIS Form I-140 that we've been talking about thus far, the form that is used is a USCIS Form I-360. And with the exception of the religious worker category, um, employment sponsorship is not, a, um, is not a issue in these categories. These are for discrete special immigrants that the U.S. Congress has determined are, uh, are of special interest to become lawful permanent residents. Exactly. So it's where the U.S. government has a benefit. And we actually did a very unusual case in this category in the EB-4 where right after September the 11th, a business that went out of business in New York um, because their facilities were located near the World Trade Towers, the business, entire business collapsed. Um, and um, that business, uh, basically that individual was allowed to obtain permanent resident status. And I think when we went to Newark, New Jersey, the um, chief of the, uh, the district director of the USCIS office came and shook hands with Aaron Finkelstein, our attorney, who had gone for the interview to say, wow, we've never approved a single one of these cases. Looks like you guys have filed the only case in the entire world or in the entire country in this EB4 category. 
Um, and really, in that case, the individual had no other choice, no other option, because the, he was on the way to getting the green card and the company went out of business and it was a direct or indirect impact of the actions of September the 11th, and it was the federal government throwing that in. So, again, the EB-4 is for religious workers, ministers, certain categories. Some of these, they've talked about the non-religious, non-minister category may sunset in September of 2009. Um, but uh, for now, they're existing. You need to file them quickly if you need it, and we need to uh, take advantage of it. Again, it, think of it as something, if it doesn't fit into the others, it's something you think the U.S. government may want to have benefit, like an international organization employee, certain physicians, religious workers, a widow, a widower, where you don't have control if your spouse suddenly passes away and you are married to a citizen, etc. Okay, moving on to EB-5. Again, we get some of these, not a whole lot. Be nice to have uh, the kind of money to create employment. Um, the Employment Creation Investor Visa, uh, again, gets the 7.1% instead of the standard 28.6% of the worldwide quota. Uh, the applicants file the form, you know, the immigrant petition form by the alien entrepreneur. Clearly, a labor certification is not required. But most important, the person has to invest either a million bucks, million U.S. dollars, and employ 10 U.S. citizens in a full-time position. And none of them can be either the investor or family members. Or they may invest only 500000 if it's in a certain rural area, in an economically depressed area, where unemployment is at least at 150% of the national average. Uh, the maximum 3,000 immigrant visas are available for this category. Uh, the person only gets a conditional green card for two years, and then similar to when you get married to a U.S. citizen, you have to file paperwork additionally before the end of the two years to remove the two-year conditional residence. And it must be either in a new commercial enterprise uh, or it can be in certain enterprise that previously existed, but you have to create these additional jobs or show that expansion. Um, and uh, the source of funds is a very important criteria because I'm often asked, can I just get a bank loan? What can I do? How can I get the show the one million? How can I show the half million? Well, guess what? You have to prove the legitimacy of funds which were invested in the new business and the source that it did come from a foreign source. You can't just rob Paul to pay Peter, okay? Um, and they must have been obtained, obviously, through lawful means. Any unlawful means funds are not allowed, not count taken into the equation. And then the USCIS, initially, the first many, many years, in very few cases were approved. In the last two or three years, USCIS is starting to approve these cases. Um, again, to summarize, you have the five employment-based categories. We at the Murthy Law Firm would be clearly delighted and honored to help you, whether you're a business, an employer, or you as an individual, whether you're a physician or a person with extraordinary ability or ex exceptional ability or who wants a filing in the national interest, to have us file your paperwork and guide you through this fairly complex, myriad, labyrinthical process. Um, we had a meeting, as you know, recently with Charlie Oppenheim the Department of State, and we've written an article this past Friday that you might have uh, seen on the website and which will be available uh, and is available on murthy.com, which explains movement of immigrant visa numbers, priority dates. And again, uh, you can listen to this or go back to this article anytime, um, not listen to the tape, but listen to go back and read the article um, to understand how immigrant visa numbers and the backlogs and how priority dates move. And it's expected to be a fairly slow 
process, especially if you were born in a country like India. Again, before we end, I must remind you that these are copyrighted materials and therefore any tape recording is prohibited. It has been a pleasure and an honor and we look forward to continuing to serve you, your employees, or you as individuals through each one of us and our wonderful team here at the Marathi Law Firm. Have a great day. Bye.